Good afternoon. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I would like to thank you to our book, uh, I would like to thank you for coming and to welcome you to our book forum today on Sean Trendy's new book, The Lost Majority. We're getting started a little bit late, but I'm sure that you'll agree after the end of this that the quality of our presentations and the importance of this book will be very much worth it. So thanks for being here. Uh, we'll follow the normal sort of uh, routine for a Cato Book Forum. We're going to have presentations from our author and a couple of commentators. Then around one or perhaps a little after, we'll have some question and answer session. I would re uh, remind you, as you may have already seen, that at any time you can purchase a book outside, and I'm sure Mr. Trendy would be happy to sign it for you. Uh, and we'll be talking generally about the issues in there. Uh, I would also ask, uh, generally speaking, that you turn your cell phones off so we don't have those, those kinds of interruptions. Um, and at about 1.30 or so, we will decamp as it happens in the new Cato building upstairs for the traditional book forum lunch after the event. So let's start. Uh, we're obviously in the middle, and now, in fact, hit a turning point in the election of 2012, in particular, the, pre the presidential election of 2012, uh, with apologies, but not really so many, to uh, Senator Santorum, uh, it really does look like we are now set for our race. Uh, uh, Governor Romney has begun to speak directly and, and critically of President Obama more and more, and not dealing with the presidential challenge. Um, this is an odd election in the sense that it's, it does look like it's going to be very close. In 2009, many people were saying it wouldn't be, that we'd entered a new era, a new, new deal, and that President Obama was the founder of that new era. But in fact, um, it's a, this 2012 doesn't fit that pattern at all. In 1936, when FDR ran for re-election, he won an overwhelming, perhaps even too overwhelming victory, uh, and that did mark the beginning of a dominant period um, that we, we can talk about today. 2012, whatever it's going to be, is not going to be 1936. It's going to be close enough to be anything, nothing like that. So the question we begin with here is what happened to the New New Deal? And our author has written a book that, in part, uh, deals with that in a number of issues. Sean Trindy is the author of The Lost Majority, our book today. He is senior elections analyst for Real Clear Politics. He holds a 99% accuracy rate in the last five elections. So you would expect he's going to become quite wealthy from the prediction <laughs> markets, right? So we'll, we'll have to ask him about that if he's putting big money down there. He's a regular guest on Fox News, Fox News Radio, CNN Radio, and NPR. He, uh, Sean earned a master's degree in political science from Duke and a bachelor's degree from Yale. I should say he first came to my attention, really I'd read Real Clear Politics, but I was uh, talking to Lance Terrence here. Uh, election night 2010, I followed uh, the blog for Real Clear Politics and I was really impressed the amount of detail and uh, with Sean's analysis as each district came in, he could tell you uh, something about that district and what the results meant. So we're very happy today here at Cato to have Sean Trendy and his new book, The Lost Majority. Do I just do the right left button? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, thank you all for having me today, and a special thanks to John Samples for inviting me and for that kind introduction. Uh, one of the worst things about this election cycle, as he said, I had gotten to the point where I knew the districts pretty well, but now they've completely redrawn the, drawn the district lines. Uh, in California, they renumbered things, so I have 53 
new representatives to memorize there and a whole bunch of districts to learn, which is kind of imposing. But uh, I'm here to talk about The Lost Majority, my new book. Um, my approach to these talks is kind of twofold. The first is I, I'm not going to talk a whole lot directly about 2012 in my speech. I figure a lot of that will come out in the questions because I think I have kind of a quirky outlook on 2008 and 2010. So if I talk about 2012 without giving the backstory, it won't make a lot of sense. So I will mostly focus on 2008 and 2010, but during Q&A, you know, I consider it open game. If you want to know who the vice president's going to be, if you want to know what's going to happen in congressional districts, um, it'll just make more sense after the talk. And I found that talking about the book, it's best to kind of give some backstory on how the book developed, because I think that informs a lot of where the book is. Um, the book starts out, I, I first kind of started thinking about this book in 2008 and 2009, and actually pitched it for the first time back then. As you may recall, after the 2008 elections, all the talk was about how we had entered into a new era of politics. Barack Obama had redrawn the map. Uh, Michael Lind went so far as to declare the wholesale rebirth of the American Republic and that we were entering the fourth American Republic with Barack Obama following in the footsteps of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and FDR. Uh, Harold Meyerson exhorted the president-elect to bring on the new New Deal, but my all-time favorite has to be this Newsweek cover. <laughs> to quote Rick Perry, oops. Um, <laughs> The story is that Barack Obama redrew the map and had a broad new coalition that would enable the Democrats to finally overcome the Republican realignment that had occurred in 1968 or 1980. But as I looked at the data, something struck, jumped out at me, and it struck me that Barack Obama did not have a new map at all, and that there was no new coalition that had responded to his message of hope and change. In fact, Barack Obama's map looked a whole lot like Bill Clinton's map in 1996. And you can see in these maps, uh, I've made it so that uh, as a state goes more for Barack Obama, it becomes a little bluer. As it goes more heavily for Clinton, it becomes a little redder. And there are some differences, but it is at its, essences, at its essence the same map in 2008 as it was in 1996. In fact, from 1996 to 2008, only three states moved more than five points towards the Democrats, Vermont, Nevada, and Hawaii. The biggest changes in the maps actually were losses for the Democrats. Arizona, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, Wyoming, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Louisiana, and Arkansas all moved five points or more away for the Democrats. In other words, Barack Obama did not build the Democratic a new Democratic coalition in 2008. What he did was he took the coalition that Bill Clinton had built in 1996, and he narrowed it. And the most important way he narrowed it is, are those states in the middle of the country around the Ohio and, and Mississippi River, what I call Greater Appalachia, these states that were settled by Scots-Irish, had remained loyal to the Democratic Party even after the rest of the South had moved away from the Democratic Party during the 60s and 70s, but finally during the 2000s began moving towards the Republicans and moved big time towards the Republicans in 2008. 
Counties that Bill Clinton had carried in Kentucky by as many as 45 points went Republican in 2008, some of them for the first time in the history. Not County Kentucky went Republican for the first time since it had voted for Lewis Cass, who was a Whig, in 1848. Now, to be sure, Barack Obama won about the same percentage of the vote as Bill Clinton had won in 1996. So if, if he's losing people in Appalachia and in the, in the Highlands South, something has to have moved towards him. And there were, what he did was he took Bill Clinton's coalition of Bill Clinton had Appalachians and white working class voters, suburbanites, and then the traditional Democratic base among urban liberals and minorities. Barack Obama lost that Appalachian component, but he went deeper than Bill Clinton among suburbanites and among minorities. And so what you see is some of these states, like California, move a couple points towards the Democratic Party, but it does it in a lot of states. So you see a little bit more bluing on the West Coast, you see a little bit more bluing in Maryland with uh, Baltimore and the D.C. suburbs. You see a little bit more bluing in Delaware uh, and in Illinois. Now, you say, well, that's a fair trade-off, right? He loses one group. He goes deeper in other groups. It ends up being an eight-point win. The problem is that if you have a narrower coalition, you have less room for error. And the analogy I use is if there's two group, if there's three groups in your coalition, you were at 100%, and then you lose all your support among one group, you're at 66% still. If you only have two groups at your, in your coalition, and you start out with 100%, you lose among one group, you're down to 50% of the overall vote. And this is especially important in congressional elections where, because of how congressional districts are uh, set up in this country with a broad geographic diversity, if you do not have a broad coalition, uh, you really risk a debacle. And to engage in a little bit of obvious foreshadowing, three Democratic senators hailed from these states in greater Appalachia. Even after excluding minority-majority districts, 15 Democratic congressmen came from these states. Democrats controlled half the governorships, 11 of the 16 state houses. So if these states began abandoning the Democrats at the national level, it presents a huge problem for the party. Anyway, so I kind of, the book was originally going to be called Big Red Rebound, Why the Republicans Will Be Back in Charge Sooner Than You Think. And it would have been really neat if that had sold because it would have been a great prediction. Uh, but perhaps unsurprisingly, New York book agents or book uh, publishers just didn't want to hear it. They thought this was a broad new majority uh, and that nothing was going to uh, mess that up for the Democrats. So after the 2009 elections where Bob McDonnell you know, wins by the same margin that George Allen had won in 1993, so maybe Virginia hasn't swung that heavily towards the Democrats. New Jersey elects the most conservative Republican governor probably in its history. We revisited the books and... Uh, they said, well, no, this is just a fluke. These are state elections. Barack Obama has a broad new majority, and nothing's going to mess that up. Um, and so we had to wait for the 2010 elections to occur, and, of course, it turned out to be a debacle for the Democrats. Um, the problem at that point, the New York publishers were now interested, uh, but you couldn't write a book saying why the Republicans will be back in charge sooner than you think, um, because it had already happened. <laughs> so what I had to do, and I'm actually glad, in a way I'm glad, it, the book is a better book now because of what happened. It's not as sexy of a book, um, but what it caused me to do was go back and not just focus on the 2008, 2009, 2010 elections, but take a broader look at this whole idea that there can be these critical elections that completely redraw the map and usher in these permanent majorities. 
And what I found is that, for example, FDR's majority, uh, he wins in 32, has a big win in 36, but he has a big loss in 1938 and the New Deal grinds to a halt. A large portion of it is actually repealed uh, 1938 to 1945 during World War II, uh, and no new, new major New Deal initiatives pass until 1964. Um, FDR's coalition really came apart in 1938 and never truly reformed. The election of 1964 is really more of a foreshadowing of Bill Clinton's coalition than it was hearkening back to FDR's coalition. And so the analogy I like to use is this, coin flips. There have been 40 elections since the Republicans first ran a candidate in 1856 at the presidential level. And if you cast an evenly weighted coin, and I don't know why political scientists always feel the need to clarify that it's an evenly weighted coin, but they do. Cast an over evenly weighted coin uh, 40 times, you would expect to see 20 instances of either two heads or two tails in a row. And sure enough, if you take it back to 1856 and look at the presidential elections, there are 23 in 22 instances of either the Republicans or the Democrats winning two races in a row. If Barack Obama is reelected, it'll be 23. And you can, you can go down the line. We'd expect to see three or two instances of five elections in a row. And indeed, we have three instances of five elections won by either party in a row. One run of six, and we see one run of six, the Republicans from 1860 uh, to 1884. So my thesis is that this realignment stuff is a bunch of garbage, to be quite blunt, that elections are really responses to short-term inputs, and that coalitions can change very rapidly depending on the choices of the party. Now, I don't believe elections are purely determined by chance. It's just because parties tend to choose poorly frequently and can only cater to one or two uh, portions of the coalition that puts them into power once they are in power and have to start picking and choosing on what's they're going to do, what they're going to do, their coalitions will rap, tend to rapidly fall apart uh, and the other party will be positioned to take advantage, just as we saw with the Democrats in 2009 and 2010. There was no way that the Democrats were going to be able to implement agenda, an agenda that appealed to all portions of their coalitions because the interests of minority groups, of urban liberals, of upper middle class suburbanites, of white working class voters are not always aligned. And so what you saw once the Democrats came into power was they had to choose what type of agenda they wanted. And so the first thing that they choose is the stimulus bill. Now, I'm not interested in the debate of whether, on whether the stimulus was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. The fact of the matter was, it was not something that moderate suburbanites were interested in because it was massive, massive deficit spending, and moderate suburbanites don't like deficit spending. Now, the balanced budget of the Clinton years is what had brought these suburbanites into the Democratic coalition in the first place. It was the New Democrats, if you'll recall. Barack Obama did not govern like a New Democrat, and so he began to lose portions of his coalition. What happens after the stimulus? We have the cap-and-trade bill. Again, not something that moderate suburbanites are going to be particularly interested in, even less so the white working class voters who depend on a lot of these energy jobs. After that, the health care bill. Again, a massive spending bill that, although paid for, was not the gradualism that came to mark Bill Clinton's term after the 1994 debacle. And so we return to this idea. John Judas and Rui Tashara had written an, a brilliant book in 2002 called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And the thesis of the book, remember this is shortly after Clinton leaves office, is that 
the Democrats had discovered this new uh, philosophy. Uh, they called it progressive centrism that emerges in Bill Clinton's term. Uh, and they say that if you have this progressive centrism, you can keep this coalition together. And in theory, they're probably correct. But the problem is, once the Democrats get into power, and the same thing is true of the Republican Party, but once either party gets into power, it's very difficult to keep a centrist agenda going. In the Democratic Party, this is especially true when your house is run by Nancy Pelosi and John Conyers and Henry Waxman and, and Barney Frank. The tendency of the parties is to move towards the interest groups that hold the commanding heights of their party, and it makes it very difficult to hold the center. And that's exactly what happens uh, in Bill Clinton, Barack Obama's first term. Now, what about going forward? I do want to talk real quickly, and I, I know we're running up against the time limit, uh, but I, I think one point is important to touch on, and that is we've heard a lot with the census figures about how the Latino population in particular is going to send the, the Republican Party into demographic extinction. Um, I, I think there's three problems with this. The first is all these projections about what is going to occur assume that we have straight line, our straight line projections. They say, well, if we see the same rate of Latino immigration that we saw over the last 20 years, uh, the, uh, the country will be majority minority by 2030, and the electorate will be majority ma minority by 2040. Republicans can't win with an almost all-white coalition. And, and this is true as far as it goes. But what you have to understand is we could take every man, woman, and child from Mexico, put them in the country today, and we would still be a 46% white country, and the electorate would be majority white. The straight line scenario just can't occur. And this is what we've seen with every immigrant wave in the, in the course of this history, is that there's a huge surge uh, from, for about 10 to 20 years. And then at a certain point, you reach this kind of stasis where the people who have wanted to immigrate have immigrated, and the people who wanted to stay behind stay behind. And indeed, if you look at the immigration rates from Latin American countries, they flatline at the end of the decade. Now, you say that's because of the Great Recession, and perhaps it is, and perhaps it'll pick up again. Uh, or perhaps it is like the giant wave of immigration we had from 1880 to 1920 that flatlines during the Great Depression and never comes back. Again, it's, a, it's an alternate scenario we have to think of. The second scenario we have to think of is assimilation. Uh, second and third immigrants, uh, Second and third generation immigrants are rarely as heavily Democratic or Republican as their forebears, Cubans and Vietnamese, second, third generation, not as Republican as their parents. Uh, and we see the same thing with the Latino population. And indeed, if you look over time, the Latino population uh, compared to the country as a whole has generally had a gradual trend towards Republicans. If you go back to the 1960s, the estimates are that Latinos were 80% Democratic group. And so you see that trend line continue. And finally, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction in politics. It's the same theme I have with these coalitions coming and going. Um, John Chait had a piece where he talked about, you know, this is the, we're reaching the end of the racialized Republican Party, uh, and, we're going as, and the Republican Party is going to have to change. And my response to that is, well, if you think that we're going to have an increasingly, a, a Democratic Party that is increasingly dominated by minority groups, you think our politics are going to become less racialized? That's an optimistic view of things, but I don't think that's right. And the test case is Arizona. 
Um, Jan Brewer did everything you could possibly imagine a governor do, a Republican governor do, to alienate the Latino vote. And it, indeed, she ran about 13 points behind Latino voters vis-a-vis -vis John McCain in 2008. But she actually ran ahead of McCain statewide. Why is that? Because she did a lot better than John McCain among white voters. And indeed, in 2010, Republicans were probably the first party to win over 60% of the white vote since 1822. We don't have exit polls going back that far, obviously. But looking at how the parties do nationally, uh, we can estimate about what the white vote was doing. And I think that is a function of these increasingly racialized parties. So perhaps the emerging Democratic majority uh, thesis is right, that the Republicans that will, will continue to see Latino growth, that our parties won't become racialized and have the uh, debates among them increasingly focused among racial issues, and perhaps there will be no assimilation among these new minority groups. But that would be contrary to the experience we've seen in the past, and I don't think that's really uh, what's going to happen to the parties in the country. I think one of these other three scenarios is correct. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Um, our next speaker and first commenter will be V. Lance Terrence, Jr. Lance is a leading Republican-American pollster and political strategist who has conducted hundreds of public opinion studies for corporations, foundations, and elected leaders in the Senate and House and state governments. He recently served as senior strategist for Senator John McCain's Straight Talk America PAC and for the Senator's 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, Lance had previously been involved with the U.S. presidential campaigns of Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, John Connolly, Jack Kemp, and George H.W. Bush. Uh, Mr. Terrence served as mem a member of the board of directors of the Gallup Organization and first managing director and president of Gallup uh, China in Beijing, and as a president and founder of Terrence and Associates, a Houston-based national survey research. Lance received his BA in European history, his master's degree in electoral behavior, and he was a fellow of the Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He's been a visiting professor at Texas A&M and a scholar in residence at Washington and Lee. And I left out a bunch of stuff from <laughs> So we, we, uh, Lance is a really accomplished person to comment here. Thank you, John. <clears throat> I uh, want to say very first uh, instant here today is that I think this is a brilliant book. Uh, I was invited here several years ago, and it wasn't such a brilliant book I had to review, so I'm happy to be back with a positive experience. I uh, was going to say that we might want to retitle this book, uh, Mythbusters for the Political Class, and I'm reminded a little bit of the show, the very popular show <clears> on <throat> Sunday nights on <clears throat> Discovery Channel, on Mythbusters, where they have supposedly busted or tossed out over 700 myths most of them of insignificant nature, such as can you track uh, uh, the smell of a bloodhound, the sense of smell, or can you uh, determine that the color red really does make a, a bull angry, and so forth and so on. But the truth of the matter is what we're really dealing with here is something very important in this book. Uh, not only is it a restatement of some of the political thinking of the last few years, but I think it, it brings us into a different direction that I'm happy, because during political science literature reviews over the last 30 years, one of the convenient themes political scientists use is discussing uh, continuity and change. In reality, they have spent most of their time on trying to determine continuity. And I really think change is really more part of our American political scene since World War II. Uh, I think maybe we ought to start discussing further than change, maybe instability, overreach, as well as lady luck. 
Now, some of the things that um, reminded me of this reviewing this particular treatise is really bringing me back memories of the, one of the first books I co-authored with uh, Walt DeVries on ticket splitters, a new force in American politics, how people were splitting their ballots. And this was based on really trying to refute the party ID model. The University of Michigan was hyping pretty strong, but of course, the American voter, that all you had to do was determine somebody's self-perception and you could explain an election. Well, that wasn't explaining many elections during those days. Six out of 10 uh, presidential, or, or, or three out of five presidential elections had gone Republican. We were winning Republican, we meaning Republicans, were winning Republican governors and senators um, uh, all across the board with only 28 and 29 and 30 percent party ID. There was a flaw in the party ID in terms of independence. Uh, we noticed for the first time, and this is quite some time ago, that half of the so-called self-perceived independents were really partisans. And when you got down to the true independents, they were about half were, were uh, not going to vote at all. And so you're really dealing with not a real swing vote there. So we had to go back to the weak partisans, weak Democrats, weak Republicans, to find out who was splitting their ticket. And we determined about 20% of America was learning to split their ticket. And this was causing a lot of deviations, so much so that we had to, the University of Michigan had to spend more time on deviating elections than they did uh, maintaining elections. Now, getting back to this, uh, one of the things I think we ought to talk about is, is perhaps the myth of this particular 2012 election. Um, one is keep in mind that voting age population, which is meaningless to us in the practical field, that is people 18 and over, is about 245 million. And those that denigrate the American political system uh, base all their base statistics on VAP rather than registered voters. There are about 190 million will actually be registered, and that's a hard figure to get down to a specific uh, finite number, but that's roughly what it will be. We'll have about about 142 million people voting in this election. Now that's quite a bit in any part of the world that 142 million theoretically on one day, although we have absentee voting and early voting, but 142 million people voting at one time is, is quite outstanding. But it's really a three-act play. It's not a one-act play. If you read all the, the political commentary and particularly in the 24-hour media, it looks like it's a one-act play and it's playing out this very moment. But keep in mind that only about 35% of American voters are truly what we call attentive elites. That is, they do say they watch very closely national politics and government. And about 45% say they do it somewhat. In effect, an inattentive but participant voter. They will vote. So now you're up at about 75% of the total electorate. And then you have the balance who tend to be what we call disaffected. They're very strange marginal voters that may or may not float in and float out using a British term. But if you look at that, we're really developing commentary today on really just the 35% that are the political elites, that is the attentive elites. They do make up about 77 million of the eventual vote, and that will overcome even the inattentive participants who are a larger group, but they only vote about 50% of the time, the first group about 90%. And of course, the disaffected are, are about 20, 25% of the country. Uh, they vote about 20% of the time, and the three-act play plays out with the first act being mostly the so-called invisible primary through maybe June, and that's where the 35% of the country are paying attention. They've already made up their minds. They're already ideologies are maintained very strongly and partisan, but it's the inattentive participants that kick in the second act of the play, which will be largely during the conventions, and that's about a 60 to 75-day duration, and then you have these disinfected group, only one out of five voting in the last two weeks. So let's keep the idea of where the really myth is in terms of the election today. It's far from being determined since we have so many other millions of votes uh, that are still to be played. 
One of the things that interested me was something that uh, V.O. Key uh, basically said 50 years ago. And I'm very much uh, a, a devotee, you might say, of V.O. Key looking at all that data during the American Voter um, publication and, and really correcting it in such a way that he said basically uh, that the mass electorate is a good deal less irrational, ill-informed, or sheep-like than has become fashionable to suppose. Key presented empirical materials to develop a counter-image of an electorate moved by concern about control and relevant questions of public policy and governmental preferences and executive personality. And the University of Michigan was forced to call it the key corrective. They said, in general, this represented a welcome corrective, some of our earlier emphases. So really what we're coming down to is uh, we need to take a look at what's real and what's to be real to, and to be determined. And the other thing is some of the, the myths that I think this book does a, a beautiful job of displaying, and that is realignments. There's no permanent realignment. I know I've been looking for it for years. Uh, we looked at those 36-year uh, cycles and felt that we could do it. It's going to take a lot of fun out of the political science uh, lecture series across the United States if we debunk uh, realignment too hard because they spent about a third of the time on that. Uh, we also determined in this book, and, and, and I think uh, uh, did it very diligently, is that uh, the coalitions are indeed fragile. And they're full of tensions that uh, don't inherently uh, work for the long term. Also, demography may not be destiny after all in certain things. I'm, I do want to do some question and answers on the, on the Latin vote, which I'm very close to. And lastly, the Obama was not a transform, uh, transformative figure after all, that we do have a lot to play out. And uh, I'm very excited about this book because it adds to If I were teaching another course in, in cycles of presidential history, this would be the book I'd want my students to have. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lance. Uh, for our third commentator today, I'm very happy to uh, have my colleague here at Cato, Emily Eakins. Uh, Emily also leads the Reason Roop poll, polling project at the Reason Foundation and is a research fellow here at the Cato Institute in the Center for Representative Government. She's working on her PhD dissertation in political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she works with uh, John Zoller. Her research focuses primarily on American politics, including the Tea Party movement, um, public opinion, regulation, and political economy. In addition, uh, Eakin studies how individuals' expectations of their own economic futures shape their political behavior and attitudes toward government. Emily has discussed her research on Fox News and Fox Business, and her research has appeared in the Washington Post, Politico, and the Washington Times. Welcome, Emily. It's very nice to be here today and have the opportunity to read this book. It was very provocative and very intriguing. Um, and I, too, agree that I think a lot of political science students should uh, be reading this in their uh, American politics classes as well. <clears throat> Given Trendy's evidence, um, in the book and what we've been discussing today, I want to go a step further and talk about what now, what, what are the implications of what we've been, what we've been learning given this evidence. Um, and Sean has focused a lot on demonstrating that uh, majority coalitions are fragile. It's not something that is permanent or inevitable. And so I want to delve a little deeper into coalitions themselves, how they come about and how the relative power structure um, is dynamic and works with inside the coalitions. 
Um, so first I wanted to point out two kind of main arguments that Trendy makes and that Sean uh, makes in his book that I found most intriguing. So the first is that, you know, that majorities are, are uh, not inevitable or permanent, but that the choices of voters, campaign, uh, operatives, strategists, and party officials that are in power and governing matter. Choices can matter, um, as well as exogenous factors such as the economy or redistricting and other things like that. Um, so that coalitions are not necessarily deterministic. So for instance, when you see a coalition of social conservatives um, and, and fiscal conservatives, it's not obvious that they have to go together, but that currently they seem to be voting um, in similar ways. Um, another issue um, is that he really highlights the role of suburban voters and uh, the white working class, those particularly those without college degrees and um, in the greater Appalachian region, um, and the role that they've played in the Clinton coalition and uh, the role that they've more or less played with, the, with Obama's coalition and how they voted in 2010. Um, I found this really intriguing. I want to know who are these voters? Um, now, I know that they're suburban or working class, but are they ideologically uh, homogeneous? I, I would think that they're probably not. Um, what issues matter to them? Now, in the book, uh, Sean explains that they care a lot about spending and deficits. I find that interesting. Why are they so much more concerned about spending and deficits? Are other groups equally concerned? And why are they responding differently? Uh, do they vote together? Um, is there a communitarian streak or a libertarian streak uh, when they vote? Um, is there something that could mobilize them um, that wouldn't mobilize other groups? And if so, what are those? Um, another thing. Um, just to take a step back from just these particular voters and looking at coalitions, you know, why do coalitions form the way they do, and and who makes up the dominant power structure within those coalitions? So those are some of the questions that I had while reading the book, and I and I hope we get to go through that during our question and answer session. Um, but now I'd like to delve a little bit closer into coalitions, uh, you know, in American politics and what we've seen throughout the past century. But first, I want to take a step back and say, well, what are coalitions? Um, some would say that the coalition is the party. And so, all right, well, what are parties? What are coalitions? Now, some uh, may view parties as being the creation of the candidate. Is it Eisenhower's coalition or Clinton's coalition? Another way to view it is that parties are the creation of competing interest groups that kind of work it out on their own to try and find policies that work for, for each of the, the members of the group, and that they also compete for dominant power within the coalition. Um, and those that have that dominant power change from time to time, and that matters because they can help set an agenda for a party, the choices that they have while governing. Um, so <clears throat> if parties are coalitions of groups and interests, and the agenda is set by the group that has the dominant power, um, how does that group gain the power? And I would argue the dominant group within coalitions are the groups that can mobilize voters to win elections. If you can win elections, you matter. Um, and that means that just because voters aren't mobilizing around a certain issue today doesn't mean they won't in the future. Um, and therefore, this kind of lends to Sean's argument that uh, coalitions are not inevitable and the dominant power within it is not inevitable. 
Um, the makeup of coalitions might surprise you, especially looking over uh, the 20th century. Uh, but uh, taking a step to just looking at today's polling data, reasoned root polling data shows that if you were to take economic issues just by themselves and compare how independents who lean Republican and compare them on economic issues to Republicans who are just regular mainstream Republicans, not they don't lean either way, the independent-leaning Republicans are technically more economically conservative than the mainstream Republicans. But on foreign policy issues, mainstream Republicans are more conservative or take the conservative position on foreign policy issues compared to independent-leaning Republicans. Now, this runs counter to what a lot of political science would uh, political scientists would tell you, because they would say, well, if you're independent, you're in the middle, you're just more moderate. All of your positions are just more moderate. Um, whereas if you are a just mainstream Republican or mainstream Democrat, then you have you know, technically more extreme positions. Um, but that does not always play out, as the data shows. Uh, so what does that mean for coalitions? Um, looking in the past, um, it might surprise you that the GOP was considered the more racially liberal party in the early 20th century. Um, and you would have surprised politicos at the time if you had ever said that the NAACP and the CIO, the, let's see, Congr the Congress of Industrial Organizations, so they later became part of the AFL-CIO, uh, it would have surprised people to ever find out that they would be working together in the same coalition. Um, but they ended up doing so um, after World War II in order to uh, achieve mutually shared interests, which was largely to, to drive conservative Democratic Southerners from the power structure of the party. So that's something that would have really surprised people at the time. Um, you might also be surprised to learn that the Republican Party was not always a, clearly a pro-life party, um, but that uh, before the 1970s, uh, a lot of Republicans were in favor of uh, more liberalized laws and abortion. However, in the 1980s, uh, socially conservative evangelicals mobilized and began winning elections. And so this is the theme that when you win elections, you matter. And so the literature shows us that they weren't necessarily invited in with open arms in order to win, but that they pushed their way in. And that by mobilizing at the local and state levels, and then also then later the national level, um, they showed they could win elections. They began to matter. And now, when we think about the, you know, the conservative or Republican base, most people automatically assume that this, you know, socially conservative evangelicals make up this base. Um, but it was not always the case, and uh, which also suggests that in the future it might not be the case. So looking at 2010, we actually see some of this competition within power groups in action. The rise of the Tea Party movement is an example, um, from my research, I believe it's an example of a particular segment within the coalition on the right to try and gain greater uh, relative power within the, co within the coalition. And you see that in primaries, Tea Party activists at the local and national level and affiliate Tea Party organizations came in and ousted Republican incumbents. For instance, Mike Lee ousted Bob Bennett in Utah, Rand Paul beat out an established 
establishment endorsed candidate Trey Grayson in Kentucky. Sharon Angle beats Sue, uh, beats Sue Loudon in Nevada. Joe Miller uh, beat Lisa Murkowski in the primary in Alaska. I mean, the list goes on. And once they started doing this, it mattered. Um, that the Tea Party mattered for the Republican Party's coalition. So now some people might say, well, wait a second, isn't this a reincarnation of the old dominant power within the coalition? And I would argue that that's not necessarily the case. Because if you look at the demographics and the political makeup of the Tea Party, uh, le less than 40% identify as evangelical Christians. More than 60% do not. Um, about a little more than half would answer uh, socially conservative answers on a survey. Um, a little bit more than 40% would give a socially moderate to socially liberal answer on, on national surveys that we've done, um, which shows that this is a unique group that has been trying to fight for relative power within the coalition of the Republican Party, and that in combination with the financial crisis and the government's handling of the crisis, um, also in theme with, with Trendy's book, too much, too fast, and in too short of a time, uh, mobilized a group of people uh, throughout the country that were able to try and influence elections at local and state levels. And from that, we're able to gain greater um, relative power within the coalition. So in sum, um, I think this, this shows us, it kind of demonstrates in action what uh, Sean Trendy's book is telling us, that coalitions are fragile, they're not inevitable, and they're not permanent, and that groups that choose to mobilize and groups that are effective in mobilizing and winning elections can, in fact, find themselves to be the dominant players in their coalition. Um, in terms of predicting that, though, that's something we can't really do <laughs> with, with very much accuracy, but certainly people can hypothesize and uh, uh, you know, some people will be right. Um, but I think in, in some, I think that's what we can learn is that the coalitions within our parties do not seem to be permanent and that we should expect to see turnover in future elections.